Hello, and welcome to Social Deconstruction with Pamela Zabala. Thank you so much for listening in. This is episode 13 and the season finale of Social Deconstruction. That is right. I'm getting fancy and I'm doing seasons. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Enjoy. Now I know what you're thinking. Season finale. Oh no, does that mean it's over forever? Heck no. Rest assured, dearest listener, that this is not the last episode ever. I sounded very Bridgerton there for a second. Shout out to Parker. I am simply taking some time to focus on my academic work for a bit, get some traveling done, and bring together the next fabulous slate of interviewees for you all, which I'm actually very excited about. One of the most rewarding parts of all of this has actually been being able to just talk to people. Um, I love interviewing and I love getting to know what other people are thinking and learning about other people's experiences. So get excited because I am. I am super proud of all of the episodes that have come together over the course of the last few months, and I'm absolutely thrilled by the response to the conversations and the topics of discussion. And I want to especially thank and give a shout out to all of the guests I've had on so far this season for bringing their stories and humor and unique perspectives to the table and indulging my curiosity about their lives. I also want to thank everyone who has taken the time to listen in and tell me what they think of each episode. I have listeners who have favorite episodes and others who share what they learned or what they got out of each new episode, which is really cool and more than I could have ever hoped for with this little project of mine. So yeah, thank you all. And then I don't think I was able to talk about it last episode because it was an interview episode, but uh, something really cool happened recently, which is that Social Deconstruction, the podcast, this very podcast that you're listening to right now, uh, got featured on Spotify as an indie pick. I posted about it on the Social Deconstruction podcast Instagram page, but basically they highlight independent podcasters and uh, the episode that I did on Juneteenth and about uh, living in precedented times, I think that was episode 10. Yeah, episode 10 was featured by Spotify. So yeah, that was really cool. All right, enough about this. Let's get into today's topic. In putting together this final episode, I had trouble deciding what to talk about, because on the one hand, I thought it might be cool to bring it full circle and do an episode on goodbyes and the social interaction that is bidding someone farewell, which, as you might guess, pretty much reflects a lot of the social rules and a lot of the weird unwritten stuff that you would find in an introduction. Uh, But that felt too final, like a goodbye forever and not a see you in a few months, which is what this actually is. And then on the other hand, it sort of feels like the world is burning right now, which it kind of has been for a while, don't get me wrong, but things just feel especially stark right now. Um, So we know that Roe versus Wade got overturned, the economy is doing crazy things, there's seemingly no end to gun violence. Uh, I actually saw a news article basically saying that news stations are overwhelmed by the amount of gun violence that they have to report every day because it's just been constant this year. And then politicians are waging an absolute onslaught against, you know, reproductive rights, the LGBTQ plus community, voting rights, and even the teaching of certain subjects related to, you know, race and identity in schools, which makes me kind of concerned as someone who's literally presumably preparing to teach about race and identity and structural racism and all of this stuff. Um, like, I, I, I don't know what the future of that is going to be, given that it's beca- it's going to become just against the law in some places to even talk about it. Um, It already is against the law in some places to even talk about it. 
if you are looking for something to watch, by the way, I highly recommend uh, W. Kamau Bell. He's a stand-up comedian uh, who I really enjoy watching. And he has a television program called United Shades of America. Uh, it's on CNN. And he recently did an episode, um, as of the recording of this episode, of course, he recently did an episode uh, talking to folks in Arizona, of all places. He sort of featured the state in particular, focusing on what they have going on over there. But he was asking people um, about, you know, uh, critical race theory and about whether education is getting too woke. And it's pretty much what you would expect uh, in, you know, every good and bad way possible. But highly recommended. This is one particular part of the episode. The clip was going around uh, Twitter and social media. But basically, it's uh, a group of women who are basically saying, you know, we don't want teachers to talk about slavery at all. Um, you know, if they say slavery is a bad thing, like that is too, too politicized, too much. Like we don't want that perspective in our schools, uh, which is a little mind blowing, but I suppose not shocking given the way a lot of the language and a lot of the rhetoric around uh, which side of history gets taught and whether history is even taught at all at this point, let's be honest. We're quickly approaching uh, an era where the most ahistorical history is, is, is going to be taught in schools, but I digress. And as always, I will provide a link in the show notes to uh, specifically what I'm referencing so that you can go access it on your free time and watch it if you want. It's shocking, but funny. But thinking again about power structures uh, and how they manifest, one of the topics that I've really been wanting to touch on, and I sort of teased it the other day in episode 10, which was the Juneteenth episode. Something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is clothing. Uh, and how it reinforces femininity, masculinity, and sort of gender roles and social power and weird things like professionalism and responsibility and achievement and all of this extra meaning that we attach to how people dress and how they look. And that extends beyond just clothing, of course, to hair, for example. Um, recently, the Crown Act was passed, which prohibited discrimination against uh, people for how they wear their hair. This is, of course, after decades-long battles highlighting the issue of, you know, specifically black hair and its association with, uh, you know, non-professional attire or behavior and the punishment of black people wearing traditional or just cultural hairstyles that are best suited to their own hair. Essentially, people not being allowed to wear the hair on their heads the way that it comes out of their heads. And this is something that I personally experienced for a long time. I, I first had my hair straightened in the fifth grade i believed and i straightened it up until my college graduation so the last time i i got a relaxer treatment in my hair was may 2017 which was just before i graduated and i said that would be the last one i ever got and so far it has been i haven't straightened it since but even growing up i got so many messages about what my hair looked like and how it should look and what was deemed, you know, good hair, bad hair, pretty hair, what was a professional look, what wasn't a professional look. And this is a journey that I've sort of had to go on on my own while also watching, you know, it, th this conversation slowly enter the mainstream. Especially being Dominican, uh, it's something that in my culture, hair is kind of a big deal, especially how it's worn. And there's, there's an entire, like, <laughs> the, you think the beauty industry in the United States is serious, the Dominican beauty industry, historically around hair has been absolutely insane. Um, but there's, you know, recently been the growth of natural hair movements in the Dominican Republic specifically. Recently in March, I had the extreme privilege of going to New York City. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to visit Mistriso Salon, which is a curly natural hair salon that is located on the Upper West Side. 
specifically in Washington Heights, shout out. And it was my first time in a salon since I got my hair relaxed. The last time I got my hair relaxed in May, 2017, I'd kind of avoided salons up until then because I'd associated so much bad with them. Um, you know, just the pain of having my hair straightened and the pain of having to sit there for hours while this stinky treatment was put in my hair and you'd get, you know, mad and hangry and you'd kind of have to sit through all of that and then sit through a blow dryer and, you know, your scalp would get burned and it was awful. So I'd avoided a salon up until then, but my experience at Miss was, was everything that I could have possibly dreamed of. And this is a trip that had been in the making for years. I've been wanting to visit the salon for ages. I was following them on social media and I just saw that they were doing great work and a fantastic job advocating for women wearing their natural, women and men wearing their natural hair. When they had two locations, one in Santo Domingo, one in New York. Of course, having moved to the South for grad school, uh, I was kind of far away from both, but I finally got to go and it was literally a dream come true. So shout out to Miss Rizos. So if you don't know about the Crown Act, the Crown Act legislation was first passed in California, actually. It started out as a state law and it was passed on July 3rd, 2019. And Crown is an acronym that stands for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. So now July 3rd is sort of celebrated as National Crown Day. Several other states have taken up this measure and it is also currently making its way through Congress. Most recently, it was passed in the House of Representatives and in March, it was received in the Senate and referred to the Judiciary Committee. And even if you're not super familiar with this issue or this legislation, I'm sure you, you're familiar with, uh, for example, there's always, always something in the news about how a young student athlete was forced to cut off, cut the beads out of their hair or cut out their, or take out their braids before a match or a competition because for whatever reason, their, you know, conference or their school didn't allow them to compete or attend their sporting event, you know, wearing their hair as they wear it. And the issue at the center of this, of course, is that any policy that, you know, prohibits natural hairstyles, specifically things like afros, braids, locks, bantu knots, uh, and anything, any style that is specifically particular to black hair or the hair of a particular group of people is inherently discriminatory uh, and exclusive. And so policies like that ultimately preserve to exclude people from certain spaces or to sort of highlight the fact that they are different in that space and, uh, you know, they should conform to the norms of that space. There are sociologists who do work on things called, uh, or the, I say things called, um, there are sociologists who have uh, done work on white spaces, uh, including myself. And so these are spaces where uh, the norm is whiteness and through, you know, everything from the smallest of microaggressions all the way up to the largest of, I guess, macroaggressions would be the opposite, but these are things that would be like blatantly racist actions or behaviors. All of these things event essentially serve to reinforce the, the white norms of the space. And again, these are not new conversations. These are, these are conversations that have been going on for decades. It's just that they're perhaps more in the public domain and the public eye because there's now this legislation that's going through Congress. I've also been thinking about it a lot because one of the, one of my projects recently uh, I say projects because I describe everything as a project and I really shouldn't because not everything is about productivity and success. One of the things that I've been doing this summer is I finally got around to watching Living Single. Living Single is a hilarious sitcom uh, from the 90s. It ran from 1993 to 1998 and it centered on the lives of six friends uh, living in New York City, living in Bro Brooklyn specifically. 
and their professional and personal and romantic experiences. Sound familiar? No, I'm not talking about friends. Living single is essentially the precursor to friends. And uh, there's actually been a, a, a lot of talk comparing the two because there's belief that friends essentially ripped off the format of living single uh, and essentially whitewashed it because living single follows six black friends, uh, four women, two men, and their experiences. And friends essentially took that format and essentially flipped it around and made it six white friends living in an inexplicably nice apartments in New York City, where there's apparently no other people of color. It's a TV version of New York City, of course. The briefest of shout outs, of course, to um, Marta Kaufman, uh, who, the co-creator of Friends. I know a shout out seems counterproductive after what I just said, but she's actually done something really cool. Uh, if you've seen recently in the news, she has started to sort of confront that legacy that the show has left, especially in the whitewashing of New York City and the absolute lack of black cast members and cast members of color. And she actually recently made a $4 million donation to Brandeis University that is going to fund a endowed professorship in African and African-American studies department, which is very, very cool. Especially since Marta has very publicly said that she is embarrassed by the lack of diversity in the show. And I, I think it's really cool that she's sort of talked through her process for coming to terms with its shortcomings and um, sort of acknowledging the criticisms that the show has received in the past, you know, 25 years. So, you know, talk about growth. I think that that is a perfect example of just owning what you do or what you didn't do and just saying, yeah, it, it maybe wasn't the greatest thing that I ever put out into the world, but here's how I'm going to make reparations for it. Here's how I'm going to do better. Here's how I'm going to move forward. So that was very, very cool of her. And I'll link an article uh, if you want to read more about that. And Living Single is on Hulu if you want to watch it or if you want to rewatch it, uh, if you're more ahead than I am. But there's an episode where one of the male characters, his name is Kyle, is a very upstanding, very successful businessman. And at his work, he's up for a promotion and he finds out that uh, one of the things that is sort of keeping him from getting this promotion at work is the way that he wears his hair. And then, of course, uh, what, what makes it sting even more uh, for him and for the audience, presumably, is the fact that he's getting these messages from his boss, who's also a black man. And he's a black man who wears his hair in a very short, uh, quote unquote, professional, high and tight haircut. And so one of uh, Kyle's dilemmas throughout this episode is, does he you know, trade his hair in for the promotion? Does he, does he kind of sort of compromise that part of who he is in order to become presumably more successful in order to achieve this next level in his career? And then of course, I, I would call this a spoiler, but the show is about my age. So I don't think it is that big of a spoiler. Um, he, he, he decides ultimately to keep his hair the way that it is, uh, despite the risks that that may pose in his professional career. And I've talked about before, uh, specifically in the episode that I did with uh, Ashley, uh, Raleigh's auntie, shout out. We talked a lot about what professionalism is and what it might mean and specifically how it has sort of shaped our lives, um, specifically as two black women who sound the way that we do and who have sort of this talent for uh, at least vocally adapting to whatever, you know, whatever whatever voice we need to put on to be successful on the phone or elsewhere. It also helps that we are named Pamela and Ashley. Those are what we like to call two resume-ready names. And those are also two names that are uh, allow us to move through certain spaces in certain ways. But yeah, this, the, this question of professionalism is so interesting to me. Um, as someone who studies race, not just in the United States, but in the Americas generally, specifically in the Dominican Republic, because something you see there that you don't necessarily see here anymore 
is uh, you'll still get ads for jobs and job postings and, you know, anything that requires people, you know, the, the, the women that you see on TV are not women who are wearing natural hair. The women you see on TV are very light skinned. They're very, you know, uh, often white presenting. And you'll see job posts that ask to, that ask people to have buena presencia, good presence, which essentially translates into being light skinned, having straight hair, being more Eurocentric uh, in beauty standards than anything else. So that's a way that you know something as simple as a job posting sort of reinforces this uh, racial structure that you're living in because they essentially validate the fact that black hair, black features, dark skin isn't valuable, isn't worthwhile, isn't professional, isn't worth having in these spaces. And then the last thing I'll say before I move on about the hair piece is not the hair piece. I'm not talking about a particular hair piece about the issue of hair and professionalism and beauty. One thing that always strikes me when I think about this is the fact that, and here specifically, I'm talking about the experience of growing up in a home where, you know, hair was straightened, hair was never curly, and specifically growing up in that kind of environment, and in my particular cultural environment. Just the skills and the knowledge that are lost. So when I say that, you know, my hair was straight in the fifth grade, it wasn't because I wanted my hair straight in the fifth grade. It was because I have very, very curly hair. And my mother, who also has very, very curly hair, but who also wore it straightened for the vast majority of her life, didn't know how to do my hair. She was never taught because culturally, uh, we just, it, curly hair, especially tighter curls the way we have them are, are, are kind of looked down upon. And so even my mother, I haven't actually asked her what age she started straightening her hair, but I'm sure it was very young. And what that translated into is she never learned how to do curly hair. So she never knew how to do my curly hair. So she didn't teach me how to do curly hair. So for the longest time, I just knew how to do my hair so that it would be straight. And that involved, you know, going to the salon three times, putting all these chemicals in my hair and then knowing what to do in between. So part of what I had to do when it came time to transition into wearing my curly hair was I actually had to go through a massive learning process and learn what the heck I had to do to even be able to take care of it because it is so much work. Um, It looks fantastic and I love it, but it is so much work. One of the reasons I don't think I could ever, like between my my plants and my hair, that takes up all of the time that I have to take care of other things. Um, But uh, like even everything down to like how to style it, what products to put in it, uh, how to, you know, make sure it stayed healthy and moisturized and all of these things. I didn't know how to do that at the ripe old age of, uh, I think I was... 21 or 22 when I finally did uh you know chop my hair uh but but the fact that my hair was straightened in the first place because someone before me didn't know how to do that because she was never taught because she had was forced to straighten her hair so these are things that are not just kind of in the moment these are generational knowledges that are being lost and gener a particular generational knowledge that's being produced and passed down about how to think about hair which I think is really interesting too But one of the things that was really cool for me at the end of all of that is that my mom actually ended up cutting her hair and she stopped straightening it as well. And so seeing me go through my hair journey, if you can call it that, and seeing me go through the learning process and seeing me finally be able to appreciate my hair for what it was, because I hated straightening it. I really did. I always wanted to have my hair curly. 
Um, but the timing never worked out. And like I said, I had no idea what to do with it, but seeing me kind of go through that and seeing that it's not as bad as it, she may have made it out to be in her mind that allowed my mom to now, uh, shift to wearing her hair naturally, um, which was really cool. And I'm super proud of her um, for doing that work. It's a learning process, of course. She still says things like good hair, bad hair, but lo bueno, pero malo. Um, but we're, we're working through it. We're learning. And um, she actually is very proud now of her hair. And she gets really excited when people ask her what products she uses in her hair. So that is something that I love for the both of us but which took a lot of time to get to because of these really ingrained ideas about what type of hair is best or and which type of hair looks good for professional settings and which type of hair is going to help you get ahead in life and all under that uh, umbrella of not just professionalism, but a professionalism that is constructed as Eurocentric. Ah, Okay. So I was supposed to talk about clothes, but I got distracted. I could literally talk about hair for hours and I'll probably do a solo episode just on that solo, meaning just on that topic next season, because I want to talk more about it. And there's people that I have sort of lined up to talk about it with me and that's going to be really fun. But, uh, (laughs) so earlier on in the episode, I mentioned clothing and specifically weird like rules and norms around clothing and just what it does and what it doesn't do and how it's completely, uh, okay. Here's the question underlying all of this. Why can't women have pockets? I know, I know, I know the age old issue, but I, I can't stop thinking about it, especially because I only recently found a line of jeans that I like that does have pockets and it's been absolutely a life changer for me. I am not going to tell you exactly how many, but I have lost a number of phones because the only place that I could put them for the longest time was in my back pocket because the jeans that I used to wear didn't have front pockets because apparently women don't deserve front pockets. I have lost many phones to sinks, toilets, puddles, buses, cars that weren't mine, just a ridiculous amount of phones that have been lost because they have slipped out or fell out of my back pocket because that's not where phones are supposed to go. And don't even get me started on the fake pockets that are made to look real in jackets and blazers and other types of pants. It's all nonsense. And like I said, this is not a new issue. As far back as the 1800s, women have been complaining about this, maybe even earlier. In 1905, an author named Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote in the New York Times that the one way that men's clothes are superior to women's clothes is that they have pockets. She also argued, rightfully so, I believe, that a purse or a bag does not count as a pocket. I also think it's really funny that despite the fact that literally everything that we would put in our pockets gets bigger and is getting bigger, our phones, for example, uh, I don't know, wallets, keys, everything like that, all of that is getting bigger while pockets remain the same size or non-existent. I've personally not been able to corroborate this with research, though I will update the show notes as necessary when I do find anything that's uh, credible to cite. But some people believe that the reason that pockets were kept out of women's clothing for so long is a way to keep women powerless, because if you couldn't put money or keys or food or anything in your pocket, you couldn't run away and be able to sustain yourself for any amount of time. My personal favorite argument is that you also couldn't hide weapons if you didn't have pockets, which I think women have proven wrong throughout history. So kudos to us. Beyond the issue of utility is also the issue of comfort and movability and all of these other features. In 1891, there was a group formed called the Rational Dress Society that advocated for women to dress for comfort and health by abandoning their corsets and 
wearing things like trousers, which are comfortable and useful. Things took another turn in the 1920s when Coco Chanel, the famed fashion designer and Nazi sympathizer, started sewing real pockets into women's jackets. But even despite these early efforts, there's still not pocket equality in clothing. Some believe that this is because designers see fashion as being more important than function. So supposedly Christian Dior once said that men have pockets to keep things in, whereas women have pockets for decoration. And unfortunately, it's still the case that if you really want a decent sized pocket in your jeans or in your pants, even despite the fact that women's fashion is starting to catch up, you'd really have to buy men's clothing in order to get true pockets. And uh, I found an interesting article that argues that that is a solution, but at the same time, it could it causes a whole other you know slew of issues, including the fact that wearing clothing for the gender that you don't identify with could lead to gender dysphoria and the fact that this signals almost an acceptance of the fact that women's clothing is meant to be inferior to men's or more useless than men's clothing. And then of course there's a fact that we live in a very complex society by which I mean every almost everything that we do and everything that we have rules about is so double-edged. So for example I think there are very clear lines about what is considered feminine clothing and the way that women should dress. And then of course, we'd like to police what people wear too. So anything that's too revealing or too feminine is considered, you know, inappropriate or distracting. And it's really interesting to think about where the burden falls exactly, especially when you think about the fact that in schools, for example, for whatever reason, we decided that it falls on the young girls to sort of watch what they wear so that they don't distract male teachers or male students from their work because their feminine wiles are apparently so powerful as to completely destroy the normal functioning of a school. I remember in my high school, and anybody who listens to this that I went to school with can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was straps had to be two fingers wide on any tank top or anything with straps on it. Otherwise, I believe you got an in-school suspension and then an eventual actual suspension. I'm always fascinated by dress codes and dress requirements, especially because a significant amount of time they are raced or gendered in really interesting ways. And you can kind of tell. So for example, uh, a dress code that I recently ran into for somewhere that I was planning on attending with some friends said that, you know, patrons of that establishment couldn't wear fishnets or mesh shirts. They couldn't wear uh, white undershirts. They couldn't wear strapless tube or see-through tops, shirts with cut-off sleeves. They couldn't wear bandanas, hoods, hats, caps, or other headgear. They couldn't have any vulgar patches or writing on clothing. And shorts and skirts all had to be of acceptable length. And you also couldn't wear like excessively loose or baggy pants. And the thing about dress codes like this is that they're often put together vaguely enough that whoever's sort of enforcing them does have a bit of discretion. They're also vague enough to not specifically target anyone or any one group, but they're also specific enough to sort of signal that they want to dissuade a certain character or a certain type of person from attending their establishment. And then, of course, you have instances like in 2018 when Serena Williams wore a 
catsuit to the French Open in Paris. And the tournament ended up banning all anyone from wearing uniforms like the ones that she wore. What's interesting about that situation is that that catsuit was completely uh, functional, uh, especially for her um, at the time she was having medical issues after her pregnancy. And this is a tournament that before this moment didn't have a dress code at all. And then they decided that because of this suit, they would be instituting a dress code because she quote unquote went too far. So as with everything, I think the issue of clothing is open to interpretation. It's open to different understandings, just as anything is when it's, when it's humans attaching meaning to something and attaching social meaning to something. As I always say, the thing to pay attention to is what is being enforced, who is enforcing it, and who is it being enforced against. So it's not so much that these dress codes exist in and of themselves. It's the fact that more often than not, they're employed strictly against women and strictly against black folks and folks of color. And those groups together, intersectionality is a thing, of course. And the same thing goes for rules about hair. Who are these rules being made for? Who are they being enforced against? Who is enforcing them? Who ultimately benefits from the enforcement of these rules? And what is it that they're trying to preserve, actually? If it's professionalism, great. But when is professionalism code for whiteness? Or when is professionalism code for the exclusivity of the space? But I don't have the answer, and I never claim to. I am by no means an expert in anything, really, it feels like. But these are important things to start thinking about or to continue thinking about, especially as we do see legislation being introduced and we do start seeing pushback about what can and can't be done or talked about or even taught in schools and in public places. All right, that is going to be it for me for now. As always, if you have lingering questions, thoughts, ideas, anything you want to expand on, anything that this episode inspired you to look into or think about, feel free to email me and let me know at socialdeconstructionpod at gmail.com. That's socialdeconstructionpod at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in, not just to this episode, but this entire season. Season two will be out before you know it, so don't fret. If there's any topic that you want me to cover, again, feel free to email me or send it via Instagram. Check out the Social Deconstruction Pod website, www.socialdeconstructionpod.com, where you can catch up on old episodes and read about what's coming next. As always, I would be eternally grateful if you left a rating and a review. You can do that in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. We're also on Good Pods, a new app for listening to podcasts. Feel free to download and follow Social Deconstruction there as well. And with that, I'm signing off. Catch you next season.